You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocates weekly podcast, our weekly radio show. Uh, very excited to have today's guest on here. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, and of course, Errol Parker, editor at large. And today's guest is a Queenslander, which is a relief. First Queenslander for a while. It's yeah, been nice. Yeah, we had Jason Fu. The Archibald Prize artist last week, and before that we had Jenny Robinson of uh, Assange's lawyer fame. All New South Walsh men and women um, who just don't get it, you know. They've lived, um, you know, amazing, storied lives, uh, interesting careers, but they just don't get it. And today's guest does. We kind of already feel like we're um, on another level here. Uh, a lot of. Uh, I guess you'd say the sensibilities uh, are restored in the booth today. You know, our, our northern, I guess, common sense, because it's not common in New South Wales or anywhere else for that matter. They've just uh, announced a new AFL team for Tasmania, which is hilarious. Um, and we can talk about all that as we go. Today's guest is from the deep north originally. Tom Walker, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm a long-term admirer and reader of the Batuta Advocate, and I have friends who... Email me headlines. <laughs> oh, well, it's, uh, it's good to know that um, I guess you're familiar with us before we start this podcast because we're familiar with you. I guess you could say you played a, somewhat of a soundtrack in uh, a lot of our lives uh, in the newsroom out behind us. And um, you've, you've actually lived an interesting life. You've traveled down the coast effectively decade by decade, would you say? You started off in North Queensland. Uh, I was born in North Queensland, in Eyre, Mm -hmm. which is up north, and North Queenslanders uh, do make that distinction. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But my memories, that was a long time ago. I left there when I was four years old, and I was on a farm up there, on a sugarcane farm, of course, Mm -hmm. and then we moved down to another farm outside Grafton, and that's where I grew up. So was that a cane-related move, or what what was happening in Grafton there? No, time. it was a. I think it was a family-related re- move yep. in that um, the cane farm on the Burdigan, which uh, my mum and dad had cleared, that was all a going concern and got a good price and everything. But the but the rest of the family were northern New South Welshmen. Okay. So it's really just my brother and I, yep. um, and we have a cousin who are Queenslanders. Okay, all right, yeah, just time and place. Yeah, well, the Clarence is a very impressive river. I mean, it's probably one of the premier rivers that they have down there in New South Wales. It's uh, it's, it's big, it's wide, it's powerful. It's, it is. There's a lot of water. I think it's the biggest by volume. Mighty, is it, when you get to that the size of river? Clarence, yeah, yes. Yeah, they start getting mighty at that size. Um, I can actually tell you the lyrics of the Grafton High School song if you like i'd like to hear that by the lordly no i won't go on <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well it's so big it's lordly the the, the clarence where river. the lordly river clarence flows in splendor towards the sea there we That's go it begins that is uh you know that is quite poetic for a school song where the stately jacaranda blooms in regal majesty well, they got the Jacaranda Festival each year, each year still. Yeah, they're our school, like. the pride and glory, 
of a smiling, verdant land. <laughs> this is good stuff. <laughs> it's got a fair bit of purple prose in it. Don't you <laughs> this is the fractured syntax, oh, mm. sorry, grammar. In the hearts of all Graftonians, foremost shall forever stand. Old it is, you just have to step back in awe. Yeah. Yeah. From, from a, uh, a stanza like that. Yeah. That's um, like I've been to McLean. Is it McLean, the town on the other side of the Clarence there? Yeah, that's where the it's, bridge is. Yeah. Down river. Yeah. And it's a very Celtic highway. town. Were you feeling that? Um, the Scottish town. The Scot- yeah, the Scottish. Were you feeling that in the town as a young kid? Was it well, a like, Celtic? Especially coming from Ayr. I mean, you know, have you ever been to Ayr in Scotland? <laughs> no. It's like Lithgow by the bay, it is. It's <laughs> right. Very nice. <laughs> But yep. were you feeling that in Grafton? Is it's? I mean, that's got to be written by like overly romantic Scottish immigrants. That song. Well, McLean's the Scottish town. Right. Grafton's full of um, German, Italian, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of surnames from everywhere. But but McLean's the Scottish town. Yeah, right. Mm. I'm guessing South Grafton. You were a rebels family. Uh, I was in. Or <laughs> well, the um, ghosts. Known in my heart, I was. I was a rebel because that's what South was where my mother grew up. Right. And um, my father is a, is a lower river guy. Yeah. But I actually, we actually lived on the north side of the river with, with the Grafton ghosts. Yeah. But the, the rebels, South being much more of a mongrel mm-hmm. side of the river, yeah. uh, the rebels from memory, uh, you know, won a lot more. Yeah. It's unfortunate their hats, the rebels' hats – have kind of been outdated now because of the Trump MAGA hats because they were red with the white riding, the South Grafton Rebels. So from about 10 metres away, you look like a diehard Trump supporter walking around with that hat on, which I guess has, has affected the merchandise he sales. He ruined a lot of good hats of mine. I mean, some of my best hats were red. Probably can't wear them anymore. We've got a lot of, uh, how would you say, a lot of talent came out of that region in an array of different fields. I'd look at um, one of the Stumpy guests. Stevens. Yeah, Troy Casadaly. Troy Casadaly, yes. Um, Bridie Jabour is an author. She's been on the podcast here before. And, of course, you've got the Mundanes a bit further down the river. I'm not sure what the name of their, uh, their town off the top of my head, but they are Bungalong. Actually, Mundanes, where the asbestos Mundanes mine. came up from Bayougal. Yeah, hmm. where the, um, the asbestos mine was. That's right. Yeah, and they all escaped. Uh, well, in the boxing tents kind of brought the family to Redfern, I believe. But yeah, it's, there's a lot more people from that region than you'd expect because especially nowadays when people talk about North New South Wales, they think Byron Bay. Byron Bay would have been a ripple in the ocean compared to Grafton in that era in terms of size and, and in and out. Um, Byron was whaling town. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and it was a – and they had a jetty there until a cyclone flattened it. And um, uh, my mother grew up there, and, and, and it certainly wasn't a resort town no. like it is now. I mean, the, the big scrub, do you remember any of that? Do you remember seeing the uh, the landscape change over the years? Uh, the big scrub was more uh, up in the Richmond, and I never saw much of it, but my mother grew up on the edge of it. So when it comes to, you know, horticulture and botany and naming uh, native plants and all that, she knows all that stuff and with encyclopedic knowledge yeah oh another name sorry um the masters family chris masters and and roy oh yes good graft and stock yes Uh, their mum olga my mother knew her yeah Mm. 
Yeah, no, they um, certainly brought down a few governments between the two of them. And a few football teams. Yeah, they <laughs> a few premierships. <laughs> <laughs> but when was the? When did you get the calling for Chris Masters? He said it was time. It was when he wanted to be a journalist. He had to start in the dirt. He had to go further west and start working in the, you know in the country newspapers. What was it for you? Was it was it university? Was it a? It was university, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no university in Grafton. If so, the nearest. The nearest university up north is um, University of New England yep. and Armidale. And so that's where I went. I can't remember applying too much to come to Sydney. It was just the natural place for anybody who's going to university mm-hmm. up there just goes over to Armidale. Yeah. And um, how was that experience? Armidale is, a, is quite a regal uh, – well, not regal. It's, 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 it's not quite at sea level. No, uh, compared to uh, Grafton, so while it's not too far as the crow flies, it's certainly a different kettle of fish altogether, isn't it? Oh, from any other regional town, certainly at the time, because it was the only regional town with a university. Yeah, yeah. and also not only the university, it had a, it had had a teachers' college for for fifty years, and um, a whole handful of private schools. Yeah. So it's, it's it's an educational town, so it's it's a little bit different. It's a pretty town to look at. It's uh, beautiful, it's, yeah, and, and the cathedrals and and the churches and, and that kind of. But what what was it? Was that was that environment? Young people? Was that what you were feeling around there? Was it was it you were surrounded by you know all of these mines that were being moulded? I'm guessing by a bit of Riverina Raleigh and some um, you know interesting <laughs> things on the radio. Yes, the Raleigh didn't have to come from as far away as the Riverina. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, probably just across at Ebor. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> But um, yes, there's a lot of young people there because of the, all the educational institutions and um, so there's a lot of the rituals have to do with people between 18 and 25 trying to make fun for themselves in a small town. And do you feel like this is, when you look at some of the bands you've played in over the years, there was very much a, a pub or a, a kind of suburban grit to them, I felt just for me as someone who's listened to them my oh, life. Oh, thank you. It's kind of different to what you what you expect. There's more BNS balls and, and I guess race days happening in, in Armidale. When did you start feeling the, um, you know, the Australia that you kind of, you feel in, in, in your songs? I mean, I, I'm sure they vary and, and there, there is a bit of a country element as well and sometimes, but you made quite universal music that actually wasn't uh, country music. It was very much it translated right across the country. Was that when you moved to Sydney, you started feeling, you know, a, a, a metropolitan or at least a kind of a wider net? I moved to Adelaide first. Right. And spent a few years there. Mm-hmm. So that was the first big town that I lived in. And when I was in Armidale, I wasn't writing. So you're right, the music up there for entertainment is, um, you know, especially out of the university, balls and cabarets. Yeah. And the kind of bands that, that are playing out there are playing cover songs to, you know, to people who are, who are pretty flattened. Mm-hmm. Uh, well-dressed but flattened. Yeah. <laughs> so there's not much that comes out of that in what I do. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I got to Adelaide and especially when I hooked up with the other young guys in Colchisel and and we we decided we'd shoot for, you know, trying to do some original songs mm-hmm. that I started to try and figure out how that might go. There's so many influences from that era of music, I would say. 
that you can hear in that era of music, the pub rock era, there was a lot of the 10-pound pom, you know, there was a lot of... Yeah, it's uh, very like um, Australian Gothic. Well, Adelaide, and especially if you go up the Gulf to Wyala and places like that, and, and Elizabeth, where Jim came from and, and Jim Barnes came from and our drummer Steve Preswich, it was full of skilled North of England and Scottish yeah. immigrants, you know, guys who were, who had like a welding ticket or electrical or something like that, guys who could, who could build stuff and, and weld stuff and put stuff together. They shipped them out, whole suburbs full of them. So th- there's a strong north of England and Scottish soul input into yeah. the bands that were forming yeah. in Adelaide at that time. And what do you think came first? Was it, was it the Adelaide music scene or was it these kind of families, uh, you know, bringing their kind of sound to Adelaide. And what, what I mean, we, we've spoken to Ian Moss as well. He, he heard about something happening in Adelaide and he moved there from Alice Springs. Did the same thing happen to you? Uh, well, no, I, I moved down there because I had a job. Yep. And I, I thought he moved down there because he had an apprenticeship and there wasn't much, there wasn't <laughs> well, very yeah. far to go in Alice Springs. <laughs> no, no, it's only a bus ride, which I can imagine in the, in the 70s w- would have been pretty quick. You know, and com- <laughs> between Alice Springs and, <laughs> and comfortable with air conditioning and yeah, wooden, all the mod cons, wooden seats, <laughs> antisocial behaviour. Yeah, you went there for work and then fell into yes. this crowd. That's right. Yes, um, I came out of university with um, qualifications that and a Commonwealth cadetship, which meant that the government owed me a job, yep. but they didn't. They didn't have many jobs to suit somebody had you know had my qualifications so there was only two places I could go and the, and Adelaide was one of them and what were you looking at doing uh I was a physicist on the theory side and a mathematician and the only places they could find me a job were at uh the Commonwealth Aircraft Factory at Fisherman's Bend in Victoria or the weapons research establishment in Salisbury which is north of Adelaide so I chose Salisbury, and they said, well, you know, turn up in Adelaide and ring this guy, and he'll take you out there. So <laughs> yeah, I, right. There was no cover well, letter online? There was nothing? No, no, none of that. <laughs> so I, um, I found lodgings in a, in a university college in North Adelaide and rang the guy, and he's now he's a lifelong friend, and we got in his old bomb car, and he took me out there. And I started a job. So you've joined a long list or, a well, not really a long list, an exclusive club of musicians who once, you know, who've come from that field. I mean, the, like the ones that spring to mind would be Art Garfunkel. I think he's got a degree in maths. Does um, he? Brian May from Queen. He's got a few uh, degrees in astrophysics. I'm not sure if you were a part of the Space Wars division down there. But, uh, yeah, look, there's a lot of them. I think there's... Dexter Holland from The Offspring. I think he's also a PhD candidate in maths. Okay. Has having that kind of foundation academically really helped you in your songwriting endeavours? No. No? No. Well, there you go. With music, reading music, is there something there with maths and, and reading notes? No, I haven't I haven't read notes since... Um, yes. I mean, I can sit down and, and laboriously do it. But I haven't read notes really since I was a teenager. So can you do things like your tax return in your head or something? Or like have you just 
completely just turned <laughs> off that part of your mind, really. No, as, as soon as you put a dollar sign in front of the numbers, <laughs> yeah. Rain a, you know those, it takes all the fun you know out of those mouse. old tape yeah. decks that have got a pause button? Yeah. 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 That's, so, I've as, got one of those in my brain when you put it. <laughs> as soon as you bastardise maths with a currency sign, you know. That's right. It cheapens it. And then, so tell me what happened. Was it a case of um, falling in with the wrong crowd? Or was it a case of trying to find something to do in Adelaide that you ended up being part of a pivotal moment in Australian music history in terms of the Adelaide pub rock jump off? Uh, By that stage, I was over it with the maths and everything. The job I had uh, out of women's research was not a particularly exalted job. I was listed as an aeronautical engineer working on a reasonably obscure problem. And in the meantime, you know, I I was enthralled by music and trying to figure out how to write songs and going and seeing bands all night, every night, and and I wanted to be in a band. And then was it a case of a bunch of guys who aren't in a band form a band? Or was it a case of an existing band that everyone kind of joined one by one until they took control of it? It was like that. It, it was a it, the second. There was apparently an existing band. There was a guy called Les Katzmarek who was the bass player in that band, and he was he seems to have been the organizer of that band because he was in a position to fire people. Mm-hmm. So they had a keyboard player who I'm told was on a trip to Sydney to buy many thousands of dollars worth of gear. And while he was gone, Les advertised his job. (laughs) And I answered the ad and went out to a suburban house and walked in and Ian was there. And I had met Ian six months previously at a jam somewhere and run into him for a few times. So that was was sort of the beginning of the band. So their existing keyboard player and and, um, guitar player, we never even met them. Right. And as soon as Ian and I joined, we got together with Les and we fired their drummer and got Steve in. Right. And then from there it was pub gigs or was it on the road? Well, it was, no, it was no gigs. No. It was just rehearsing. Rehearsing. There was, um, after a little while, Ian wanted to concentrate on guitar, so we started looking around for a singer and we got we got Jim, who was known in the band and, sw- and we, we had connections because they were from Elizabeth. Yeah. And so Jim came in and, and we were just rehearsing. We had no connections to be able to get gigs except uh, Les Kasmarek, the bass player. He he came from a Polish family, so our first gig was at the Polish club. <laughs> uh, I've heard of a lot of gigs at the Polish clubs over the years. They kind of just let you go? We did what we did at that stage to to pretty much not much reaction at all. You know, at the Polish club, I remember there was like a sparse smattering of old people, old Polish people, who probably just trying to get over the war. Yeah. Mm. And you guys were just bringing some really gentle kind of music to them. Yes. It's just <laughs> what they needed. <laughs> and then, and then when, when did you feel it happening? When did you feel it, oh, now I have to look at my calendar? When did you have that feeling? Oh, I'm going to be at the night train in Broken Hill on that weekend. When did you feel the... The movement as a band happening, was it a year in? Oh, we, we moved. I went back to Armidale to do some more study and they decided, well, can we come too? Yeah. And <laughs> so they all threw their jobs in and got a, a cheap little van and um, 
moved to Armidale for six months, which was a pretty, six months of their life. A pretty hedonistic <laughs> six months for them. So there was a lot of moving around. And they, they did a lot of gigs and became a much better band in Armidale. I could sit here and tell you years of this stuff because we didn't actually get anywhere for a good many years. Yeah. Mm. So there was a lot of just, um, how would you say, just failure. Just, yeah, running the ball up, getting tackled and doing it again. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, you know, there's a lot of that in in niche at, at Queensland reporting as well. There's a lot of years spent being blown around the doldrums. Yeah. So I can yes. imagine what it was like. Mm. Yeah, hitting the ball up. Getting hit under the ribs and coughing it up. <laughs> Just starting again. I want to talk about the themes in the music that you wrote in that band, you know, as a solo artist as well. When did you start feeling like you could talk about things? Was that like a, you know, from the themes of um, a lot of your music in terms of like young uh, manhood or, um, you know, stoicism or war, when did you feel like you had you could do that and, and your lyrics were special enough to do that because that's a that's a really interesting thing to that everyone kind of takes from the from that era of music was like actually this was the first time we heard about being us in Australian rock music um well I don't know there, there were people before that who were writing I mean Slim was writing Australian music uh like that for 20 years before we came along, yeah, 30 years, yeah, <laughs> something, yeah, 60 albums in. Well, I suppose that Joy was writing a lot <laughs> of that. I mean, you know. Yeah, and when and when you talk to those people, they talk about, um, oh, no, we didn't, we didn't start this, you know, there was Tex Morton, and mm. they have their own heroes mm-hmm. of a, of a yeah. previous generation. So I wouldn't say that I or we started anything. You know, five years before we came along, there was Greg McCainch writing very, uh, you know, very serious local lyrics, and and those lyrics were a lot of why people were getting into the, his band, yeah. uh, Skyhawks. The trouble is, it was all it was all about Victoria. Yeah, yeah, and um, I don't need to add to that, do I? No, no, not at all. We've got enough of that. They got their own <laughs> horse race. Would you say some of your songwriting was anti-war or would you say it was more of the experience? And where did that kind of click for you? Um, you know, we talk about veterans coming home and a lot of the things that actually hadn't been discussed that publicly, you know, um, aside from Normie Rowe, you know, we hadn't actually seen a lot of that stuff talking about uh, the experience of people, particularly Vietnam, coming home to Australia. Uh, I didn't feel like, um, you know, that I was giving myself permission mm. or, or anything or that anybody needed permission to write exactly what they like. Mm. And I wasn't in a position when, when if you're talking about K-San, when that song was written, I wasn't in a position that anybody would ever hear it. Yeah. At that stage, we were living in Sydney. We were doing a gig a fortnight somewhere mm. up the coast. There was no, no chance that we would get a record deal because we'd been knocked back by every major company and a few of the minor ones. So I was really just writing for my own pleasure or, you know, out of my own interests and and making stories work and rhyme. And also, I guess what you're touching on is, you know, why would anybody be writing about veterans, mm. however inaccurately, 
Um, <laughs> well, that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm mm. asking. I'm, I'm saying it was the first time anyone actually said, "This is the experience." You know. Uh, well, my father was a veteran. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask. You had a long yeah. line of family yes. to, to your first, uh, to your grandfather in the first my world grand, war. My grandfather was a veteran. Mm. Um, my grandfather came home with from France with you know big pieces of one side of his face missing, and he went over there with his best mate from McLean, and the best mate never came back. Yep. His two brothers never came back. And, you know, I could sit here and tell you stories about all that. Same with my father and his brothers and cousins. And so that's all, you know, come from a, a family where I'm the first generation where we're not, you know, returned soldiers. Yeah, not sent. And did you ever feel that being a part of your, part of the plan for you? Did you ever see yourself going that way? I mean, you did get pretty close down there in in Adelaide on that first job you had after university, but was there a bit of military in you or...? Uh, I wouldn't have done it. I was in the cadets at school mm. and I wouldn't have left school and joined the army. No. And I was shielded... By going to university, I was shielded a bit from the ballot, yep. uh, which was operating at that time, you know, conscription. I graduated, uh, you know, towards the end of the conscription era. Yeah. So that kind of thing was always around and joining the army was probably not something that I would have done. And then when you start having songs like uh, Kaysan, Cheap Wine, were these sleeper hits? Were these ones that you wrote and you performed and you performed and you performed and then, and then you found that they resonated so heavily that they kind of became popular and requested for that way? Or was, it, was there one moment or one song that kind of led to the radio play and then the, the increase in phone calls. Cold Chisel was never, was never much of a radio band until radio kind of had to get on board. Yeah. So going back to the songs, I think Kosan was our first single and it, it clocked in, in in the high 50s. It got to number 47 or something and then dropped out again. And from then on, you wouldn't hear it and unless you came and saw us live. But more and more people were doing that. And um, and so it was, it was a long sleeper and a grower. Yeah. And um, two big changes happened somewhere around, after a few years we put out, I was trying to write hit singles, yeah. radio singles, which which didn't, never came naturally to me. I'm not that kind of writer, but, I, but nevertheless I was trying to, I, I was thinking, you know, how hard can it be? And at the same time, <laughs> I had mates in, in Dragon, and in particular, uh, Paul Hewson, who would, who would just, like, get up and write a hit before breakfast. Um, and so I could see the, the dramatic change that happens to your life when you have a hit single. Because <laughs> when I first met those guys, you know, they were eating toe-clipping sandwiches upstairs down at... Um, could you buy a hotel? Yeah. They had no money and nothing happening. And then they had like a string of over four months. They had a couple of hit singles and it's it went off like their whole life went off like a rocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I thought, and I was still on the toe clipping sandwiches and yeah. thinking, you know, I, I would really like some of that. Yeah. So we were, you know, I was really trying to do that. And so I wrote this song, Choir Girl. Mm-hmm. And that got some leverage at radio and started to get played on the radio. A completely different song 
to what we do live, mm-hmm. what we're doing live, which was getting more and more ferocious. <laughs> but it was something that radio could play, and it had it had melody in it, and it wasn't too fast and stuff like that. That that made a big change. The other big change that happened was that FM radio came in yep. sometime around seventy nine or eighty, and we. And for some reason, what we were doing and what our raft of bands were doing, by that I mean, you know, us, the Oils, the Tats and uh, the Angels and that kind of generation of bands really fitted with Mm -hmm. FM radio Mm -hmm. about the time that we're all taking off live. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, like, how do you think your songwriting has evolved over time? I mean, like how you were saying that, you know, Kaysan came from a time when you didn't really have, you know, pressures to perform every night. You didn't have a label that was breathing down your neck asking you to do another one. How did it change over time, sort of going from the early singles like Kaysan into something more contemporary like Choir Girl? Like, did the music come first or was it just always the lyrics? I've always been always been focused on the lyrics. I guess as I got older, I became drawn to people who, in my listening, to people who are good with lyrics. And I always recognised through listening to the music that my father loved from the 30s, which, you know, great American songbook stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. that there's some serious and beautiful lyrical skills going on beneath the melody. So that was, that was always probably more of a concern of mine than most contemporaries, yeah, I would say, perhaps, maybe. And how did you navigate? I mean, you've had, you've you've had such a storied career outside of Cold Chisel, and you've had many iterations um, with your music in bands, and now, uh, of course, your fourth solo album. How did you navigate the lifestyle? That's what I want to ask. I mean, even from before you'd even had the the pressure of the gigs, of the gigs and the gigs and the stadiums and the whatevers, you had. The bloke's living in Armidale for six months while you're trying to finish uni, you know what I mean? And they're, and they're living hard. How did you kind of navigate all of that? Or was it all one momentum? It was all moving towards the same place, which was to just keep playing as much as possible and keep writing as much as possible. Uh, well, we're always focused on the music and yep. the writing and, and um, you know, really, really obsessive about what we do and trying to get better and better and figure it out. Mm. And listening to a broad pretty broad um, river of, of music, of input, yeah. you know. For me, I was a Led Zeppelin fanatic and, and I was a, a Duke Ellington fanatic. Mm-hmm. So, but how do I, you know, synthesise those two? Mm. And there's, then there's six other things that I love, yeah. you know. How do you mix Frank Zappa in there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. or... Yeah. Or Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> how, do you, how do you mix Frank Zappa and Ella Fitzgerald? I'd love to see that on stage. <laughs> but um, I'd love to see Frank sing yeah. and, and Ella play the guitar. <laughs> Closest uh, I've seen to that is yeah. Adele and Darius Rucker doing a duet. That was, uh, that was pretty special. <laughs> but that's, about as, that's about as obscure a duet gets, I think. Yeah. No. They had one at the... Uh, they covered Lady Annabellum. It's a good right. track. Yeah. It's a good track. <laughs> but how with the, with the... You know, it's the only industry you've got where your employer effectively for the night drops in a couple cartons into the green room and expects you to finish them. There's no other workplace like that where you're expected to do that. Um, how did you guys keep moving forward 
Or was it just you just take it in the ribs and wake up dusty and have a coffee and a cigarette and do it again? Uh, yes, as, as you just said, you know, and it's it's just a matter of how deeply you want to you want to dive in. Yeah. But there's no question that you are diving in. This is part of. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's part of the attraction. Yeah. You don't have to get up in the morning and turn up somewhere for work at eight o'clock or eight thirty. You can sleep in. You can stay up as late as you like. Sleep in the next day. A, a lot of the time, there's not much food, but there's a lot of drugs yep. and drink. And um, dinner at Arthur's at two in the morning, up in the cross. Arthur's, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, Arthur's didn't feed you with us, but that that was more like the the glitterata of the time. <laughs> went to Arthur's. <laughs> I was just trying to think of a King's yeah. Cross locality. You, uh, mm. you you spent a lot of time there over the years you can feel a lot of the sydney kind of red light district as well did you spend a bit of time in those haunts or where were you were you were you doing that bondi kiwi thing just driving up and down south head road doing gigs uh in that era you're talking late 70s mm. you know I was, I was pretty much based in the cross mm-hmm. the other guys were for a for you know a matter of days and then sensibly moved out <laughs> found found couches to surf on Jim was out towards Bondi and Bondi Junction and also over in Oxford Street a few of the blokes were in a share house over there. Well, he is Scottish, so going to Bondi Junction is probably the natural fit. <laughs> is it? He's uh, not a yeah. Celtics fan, though. So no. No. <laughs> um, no, well, they do call, like, over in Ireland, they call uh, Coogee County Coogee. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. When, okay. they, when they lose yet another young kid to the sunshine, they, they oh, he's gone to County Coogee. Yeah, <laughs> that might have been a bit. Before I even that. forget. I think Jim's a Celtics. Yeah, guy. Yeah, the lifestyle of you know everyone. Everyone remembers the hard living era of the of the hard rock, pub rock era. Um, when did you feel yourself starting to taper? Was that a solo thing, or was that another band? Like I, I feel nowadays, like you could easily do the cup of tea. You know, I mean, you'd have to almost if you want to keep. This career going, cup of tea in the green room. Yeah, I mean, like, for years and years, the only person really in contemporary music that I have seen regularly consume a bottle of vodka over the whole of the set would be The Game. Yeah. Um, that Clancy and I were lucky enough to see in Belfast um, a, a couple of game. years ago. He's a rapper from America. He drank All a right. bottle of vodka <laughs> over, the, over the course of his kind of set, and that's something that Jim was really sort of known for, but... He obviously doesn't do that anymore. Like, is there a time when, you know, you as a group kind of get to the point where it's like, is anyone keen to just go and have a pub steak and uh, a couple of glasses of water and then go back to sleep? Uh, after the show, well, I, I still... If we're doing, like, a, a cold chisel reunion mm-hmm. now, I still fairly commonly have a scotch or two with with Jim because he's interested in whiskey and I'm interested in whiskey mm-hmm. after the show still you know it's been a while since I've seen you know white lines and stuff like that but mm. but not as long a while as you would think yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, the well, Olympics was a good time well yeah we'll move on from this one because um, we've got an album uh, that's out now recorded in two days Yes. Is that true? Yes. 2022. Yes. Was this coming out of the pandemic? How do you do that? 
We're swapping files while the pandemic's on. Yep. Between me, Michael Vidal, the bass player who's on the Mornington Peninsula, Garrett Costigan who's in Mooney Ponds with all mm-hmm. the underbelly people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and Bill Shorten. <laughs> and Bill Shorten, the, the toxic little weasel. Um, and uh, we've got Hamish Stewart, the drummer. He's he's in Manly. And Roy Payne, as he was in Mayfield, or as he stresses, mm-hmm. East Mayfield. East Mayfield. <laughs> <laughs> Mayfield the, Heights. The, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we're passing around files and trying to... Comp- and so they're, they're familiar with some songs while... COVID's going on, and then, and then we got an opportunity to get into a room together, and we woodshed those songs quite intensely for a few days. Come up with some new ones. We actually wrote a song all together in that process. So we did a we did a couple of sessions like that of just in a rehearsal room for three days, and then we got together and did some gigs. One gig in Sydney, two gigs in Victoria just to tighten everything up so that by the time you go into the studio on the back of those gigs in Melbourne, everybody knows the songs, mm-hmm. everybody knows what, what the flavour needs to be and and where we're all going with it. So you can go in and and largely play them live. That's how you do an album in two days. I was just thinking about that. We, we've just recently had our first experiences with uh, Screen filming on screen we're doing a documentary on fine cotton the fine cotton affair i'm sure you loaded, oh fantastic i'm sure yes. you loaded up on that one <laughs> yeah. back in here uh, yeah. back in 85 like you and the entire <laughs> queensland government police force <laughs> everyone um but there's that one moment where you're stuck on one line it just comes out wrong it just comes out wrong do you find um and that, that's something for tv and that's something you just got to get over and and you know, it doesn't matter how much you've rehearsed it, but do you actually feel you don't get caught up like that recording an album if you've been playing it? That's right. If, you, if you've been playing it live, like yeah. one, one night live in front of an audience, a song grows and becomes more embedded and, and developed than it does, you know, from, from 10 weeks rehearsal. Yeah, right. That's, uh, it, yeah, it just becomes a part of your, mm. re, your recall. Yeah. Know. Well, yeah, like I'm, I'm not sure if you have read it but at the moment i'm reading um inside out by nick mason about his the drummer from pink floyd all right and they were saying that they were essentially performing dark side of the mood live in uh, 1971 and the album came out in 1973 so they had so much time to workshop everything like i'd say too it's also you know having a few years of experience under your belt kind of doing this like this isn't the first album you've done so you know what you're doing does it get any easier to get an album out or do you always have to go through the same kind of process? It's a big exercise because I don't have a huge business infrastructure. So I'm essentially doing it with a manager and with a publicist and and with um, with some very close mates who I've been playing with yeah. for 10 or 15 years uh, on and off. And um, so it's, it's more of a cottage industry. But it's, there's a lot of joy in it. I mean, I can't think of anything that you could do for a living that would be this much fun. Yeah. Except, you know, what you guys do is the Petita Advocate sounds like, you know, a bunch of guys in, a, in a hut out the back of um, the Batuta race course, mm. a few beers, 
coming up with funny lines mm. and thinking, well, let's let's put this in a newspaper. Mm. It does, yeah. yeah. So you say it's a, it's a bit of a making an album for you is like being inside a peanut gallery on unicycles, um, juggling and drinking full strength four X bitter. I've often thought that it's just like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about the songwriting. Is it the song, whether you're with Tex or whether you're with Ian or whether you're with the band you're working on your solo album, do you find yourself, especially with such emotive themes, you know, that we've seen over the years, some songs are rock and roll, some songs, you know, everyone's thinking about what, what they're hearing you sing. Do you defend your songwriting or it's all about what works as a song? Have you ever had to defend, you know, your songwriting? Kind of, guys, I think this will actually work. Um, you know, it's not really a jump on cars kind of rock song, but it is a – or do you feel like you're all in the same vein? You're all kind of in the different bands you've been in. You've all got the same vibe about the music you're making. If you notch up a few wins, mm. then people around you, I guess, trust your idea, mm-hmm. what, what the ideas that you have. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're not utterly dogmatic. Nobody wants to work with somebody who... Nobody wants to be just a session player yeah. for an egomaniacal songwriter. Yeah. So, so like being in the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah, so, so you've got to be... If you set things up like that, you're, not, you're just not going to have a very good band. Yeah. So the first thing you have to do is, is get other people into writing. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's, everybody's uh, having fun. Yeah. But I, when I when I bring something in, I've got a reasonably clear – well, I've got a pretty clear idea of how I think it should go. But I'm always open because, you know, other people can have good ideas too. Mm. Well, we look forward to seeing some of these songs live. Errol, where, where, where can you see um, the fourth studio album of Don Walker, Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky? So, look, the first one, it really sends a chill down my spine because I've had many a cold beer here and I've also spent – a lot of nights seeing the sunrise in this part of the world. It's Friday the 19th of May at the Imperial in Yamundi. Oh, Kevin Rudd country. Kevin Rudd country there. And then the next night, May the 20th, we're at the Old Museum in Brisbane, which is a fine venue. And then there's a bit of a break over the uh, over Queen Victoria's birthday. We go back to uh, the Factory Theatre in Sydney, and that's on Friday the 16th of June. And then the next night, the Saturday, the 17th, we're down at the Barrel Bowling Club in Barrel. I wonder who's going to pop in there. Is that where, uh, that'll be where Don Bradman learned to bowl, the Barrel no, Bowling Don, Club? No, Don Bradman's from Cootamundra, but yeah, I think he did learn to bowl his uh, right arm orthodox spin down there at the Barrel Bowling Club. But uh, look, I think he was more of a batter than a bowler. And then on Friday, the 23rd of June, we're at the Suki Lounge in Melbourne. It's probably somewhere... Quite fashionable. Don, have you ever played at the Suki Lounge? Have played at the Suki Lounge, yes. No, I guess it's somewhere in the middle. Belgrave, Victoria. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, and then on Saturday the 24th of June, we're at the Memo Music Hall in St Kilda, which I guess is a, a satellite town of Melbourne these days, isn't it? St Kilda. St Kilda. Mm. St Kilda. Very, um, it's a little bit upmarket these days, mm. but there is a stretch, as in King's Cross, there is a stretch that is... Um, that it's just as colourful as it always was. Keeps you on your toes. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and you're also playing at the uh, Blues on Broad Beach Festival. Uh, there yes, in, uh, it's the 21st on, of May. On the Goldie, yep, and then yes. at, at the Gimpy Muster. The Gimpy Music yes. Muster. What <laughs> yes. a sensational show that is. I've, um, I've been to many musters, actually. 
Do they put you up in tents there, or what's the go? No, no, we're in a motel. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, no, Gimpy is um, as you blokes would know, uh, Gimpy is can be a pretty cold place mm. around muster time. Yeah. You don't want to be out in the open air. Yeah, no, it's um. Mm. The Gimpy Muster, I, I dare say each time you go, 80% of the patronage have been there before. It's a real recurring crowd. They get hooked on it. It's, um, yes, yeah. It's a great weekend yeah. out if you haven't done it before. Can help to have um, the rum blanket if you're camping out <laughs> under the stars, though, that at that time of night. But, Don, the album's out this Saturday, May the 5th. Yes. This podcast will go live on the Monday. So the album's out a couple of days ago. Yeah. You can get it at any streaming service. Yep. But you can't get it at Sanity anymore because the last one shut the other day. So. <laughs> Did it? Yeah. 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 yeah, so head to Don's website. Chase tickets and um, and the new album. Download sites or in stores on vinyl and CD. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like in our day where you just go to Napster. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really, really put an old industry on its skates as teenagers. Yeah, yeah. a bit of yeah. sharing. <laughs> poor, poor old Metallica. <laughs> How would they ever recover? They were filthy. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining us, Don. Great yarn. Obviously, a man who's inspired the Batuta Advocate greatly over um, the course of our existence. And um, yeah, thank you for running the ball up for all those years to bring us and. and uh, Treat us to what you have. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the Batuta Advocate podcast. Mm.